Welcome to Making Waves, the podcast for curious business leaders, brought to you by Wavelength. Since 2008, Wavelength has taken over 2,000 leaders, physically and digitally, inside the boardrooms and shop floors of some of the world's most admired, progressive, and successful organizations, and hosted in-depth conversations with highly accomplished leaders from the world of business and beyond. We've run programs in Silicon Valley, China, India, and throughout Europe going inside iconic organizations such as Apple, Alibaba, Netflix, Lego, and India's Aravind Care System, and hosted sessions with highly accomplished leaders like Jesper Brodin, CEO of IKEA, Alan Jope, CEO of Unilever, and Helle Thorning-Schmidt, the former Prime Minister of Denmark. I'm Adrian Simpson, co-founder of Wavelength, and in this episode, the focus is mission change leading through crisis. Today, we are joined by Stuart Tootle, former commander of Third Para, who led in Afghanistan. In this podcast, Stuart brings to life what it's like to lead in some of the toughest and most challenging circumstances imaginable, and how agile leadership is key when, quote, unquote, no battle plan ever survives the first encounter with the enemy. Interviewing Stuart is Matt White, long-term associate of Wavelength. Welcome, Matt and Stuart. With us today, Stuart Tootle. Um, I've uh, had the pleasure of listening to Stuart on a few occasions before, and um, uh, he captures the essence of leadership in crisis like like none I've ever heard before, and I'm sure that's going to be extremely pertinent to today's reality. So, in 2006, Stuart um, headed up the first UK battle group into Helmand Province, which was originally a peacekeeping mission, um, but turned into something uh, very very different and was actually some of the most intense fighting that any Allied troops have ever seen. Um, out of this uh, um, crisis, actually, Stuart was awarded uh, the Distinguished Service Order as well um, for his leadership, and he provides actually the very definition of leadership at the front line. Extreme conditions uh, that are very, very relevant to leadership today. Uh, in 2008, Stuart left the army um, and actually has since then been pursuing a career in the corporate world uh, and is extremely good at crossing the boundary between the military uh, and, and the business world uh, and making some of his lessons extremely relevant. Uh, and he's been heading security for one of the very large banks in the UK. Uh, he's also founder of a charity for wounded paratroopers as well. Um, so leaving as much of a legacy as possible uh, from his experience in that world. And I'm sure much of this, uh, much of the current crisis is actually bringing to mind many, many of these uh, lessons that, um, that he's been fortunate or in some ways, let me, let me state it, unfortunate enough to learn uh, at, at the battlefront as well. So welcome, Stuart. I hope you're well. Hi, Matt. I'm good. Yes, very good. Thank you. I guess I, let's leap right into it as well, because because a lot of this is about kind of change of mission. And I think uh, when I've heard you speak before, you you went into Helmand with a with a very very specific mission. Um, it'd be really interesting if you can capture kind of at what point did you realise that that initial mission was kind of no longer relevant or or, or needed, and kind of what did you do? Well, when we went to Afghanistan, uh, the mission was built very much as a peace support operation because the intention we were just there purely to provide security for the civil development effort that was going on. So there was an aspiration there'd be no little fighting. Now, you don't have to be a great student of history 
history to realize that Afghanistan is a dangerous place to be. When we arrived, we stirred up a hornet's nest and the Taliban launched a big offensive, which we knew was going on. So we began to think what it would mean for us, but we were a good sort of 100, 150 kilometers to the south of where that activity was going on. And we launched an operation further to our north. Uh, it was a purely security operation. We, again, didn't think that there would be many Taliban uh, in the area that we landed. And literally from the moment we landed, we realized that the assumptions collapsed. Instead of there being no guerrilla fighters there, there were several hundred. In fact, they had a real risk of outmatching us. And so the plan collapsed very, very quickly. And we used a decision-making methodology to change that plan very quickly. Uh, we adapted, we adjusted, we transitioned to uh, a new style of fighting literally on the ground or style of operating, which then became very much fighting. Um, and that was the real moment when we realized that we'd be involved in seven hours of intense combat, very, very close quarters. Um, we were very nearly overmatched, as I said, and were almost overrun at one point. Um, but we managed to adjust and we managed to complete the mission very successfully. Um, but we were all taken very much by surprise by it. And from that moment on, I can remember getting back to my headquarters and saying, we need to be ready for this level of intensity to this extent of massive change every time we go out and operate and virtually every single day. And then from then on, it just became a, a roller coaster of change. In that moment uh, you, you're talking about, because you hear often that when something dramatically changes, some leaders almost like kind of, they become tunnel vision. They stick to the stick to the knitting, stick to, this is what we came here to do. Uh, um, there's case studies written on this. What prompted you as it were to say, actually, that's all gone out of the window. Was there not a temptation to say, do you know what, just keep going, it'll be okay, we'll, we're gonna stick to, the, stick to the mission? We didn't really have a choice to do that. I mean, it, it was you know, almost as dramatic as adapt or die. The, the situation right. was, I mean, so dire. If you think that we deployed with about 1,500 troops and with it, by the end of our tour, and certainly within a year, 24,000 troops were doing what we were doing. So resources were stretched to absolute breaking point. But what we had to do was a complete reappraisal. And there's a maxim in the military that no plan withstands first contact with the reality of the ground. And so we were living um, that theory in practical demonstration. And so what it meant was we had to transition rapidly to a very different set of circumstances. It was about reorganizing. It was about getting people to step up. Suddenly people had to um, become fighters they never expected to, to, to lead a combat operation. So they thought they had administrative tasks. And one of the things which was probably most relevant was the importance of empowering people. We became sucked into defending five towns, which were a good hundred miles away from our main base. And if any one of them had fallen to the Taliban, then the whole mission probably would have been over. But if you've got five locations, any one of which could have consumed you as the commanding officer, the leader of the battle group, I couldn't be in any more than one place in any one time. So my biggest leadership challenge was about empowering other people to take actions, to step up, to assume responsibility when I wasn't there and I couldn't be there, I couldn't be everywhere. 
And so it was about empowering my direct directs to make their own decisions. Um, and we had a number of requirements which helped us um, helped us do that, not least our own decision making methodology, which is very fast, very agile and very empowering. Could you say a little bit more about the decision making methodology? Because you've mentioned that a couple of times. Is there is there a capture for that? How do you do it? Yes, there is. I mean, it's described as the combat estimate and it's a problem solving, deciding and planning tool. Um, it's incredibly agile. We could use it to plan and launch a large battle group operation involving a thousand people and a complexity of airspace management busier than Heathrow, um, probably at its busiest point in time. But it could also be used by a 24 year old corporal who is leading a team of 10 soldiers, incredibly flexible. And it was about framing a problem or an issue or a decision that needed to be made around a set series of questions. And it was a logical step sequence of framing the mission. Really important to have a common operating picture and everyone's then on the same page with a shared consciousness. And then an actual mission analysis. What I've been asked to do and why? What are my freedoms? What are my constraints? What does my one up and two up boss want? And then actually drawing that out into a set of effects to be achieved and then resourcing and sequencing them. And then crucially doing a step back control check to say, what have we missed? So it became incredibly agile. And this is what we used. And the most important thing was for people under pressure. And it could be used, as I said, at every level of leadership within the organization. It took the random and the bias out of our decision making when we were under pressure it gave us a methodology a handrail and it was incredibly fast so i might spend three days launching a major operation but if we suddenly had we had lots of crisis where we had a nasty ambush against one of my patrols we had to get there fast with about 500 troops with a similar complexity of numbers of helicopters and aircraft and we launched from a cold start in 45 minutes that entire organization out the door Wow, that kind of decision-making process that's very agile, engages people. Have you been using that ever since? Do you use it in the corporate world? Do, do we, does the corporate world buy into it? I think one really important thing is to establish the, the context of background in the sense that the military spends a lot of time training and thinking about this at every level from a young officer joining uh, Sandhurst uh, all the way through to a commanding officer about to take over a bath group. So it's ingrained and it's in our DNA and it runs through the entire organization, as I said. Now, that's not always easy to replicate in the corporate world because it has a different background and a different structure. But particularly as we face the advent of COVID-19, which has so many similarities with a military operation, added to the fact that you've now got fear, uncertainty, unlimited risk liability, which is a daily occurrence. And this, crisis which is going to be perennial and people talk about the new normal the next normal business abnormal it's going to go on for a significant amount of time and it's beyond the ken of most people's experiences particularly from a business point of view and a leadership point of view and so while they're in uncharted territory the military experience provides a very powerful learning perspective. And ever since arriving in a large corporate organization, which, which I left about a year and a half ago um, to, to set up a consultancy, which is really about fusing this decision-making for the benefit of business. Um, but what I've found is it's had greater resonance. So I always use it as a global head of, of an organization um, and we used it. And you can't lift and drop 
but you can begin to apply the principles and it's all about empowering people so that they can take their own decisions and of course with COVID-19 suddenly the whole decision-making methodology all about empowering people all about facilitating transition in turbulent times is beginning to resonate more and more great well i'm sure i'll come back to that a little bit in a, in a little while crucible moments i know that's a, that's actually a phrase i picked up from you a couple of years ago around where you learn most uh, of your leadership when i mentioned that phrase crucible moment what where, where does that take your mind where do you go to when I say things, you know, the moments where you learnt most? What was happening? It was on the 6th of September in 2006. So we'd actually been running the operation for almost over five months. And we were pretty practised, uh, but we were also pretty tired as well. And on the 6th of September, we had what we called the day of days. So there were lots of dates which were pretty dramatic. But on this one, I had a body of soldiers who were trapped in a minefield. Uh, a soldier had lost his leg, the rescue party went in, three of those soldiers then lost their legs, another five were injured, uh, the helicopters we needed to extract them weren't available, we sent in a heavier lift helicopter, that caused more casualties. And there was a real moment when we thought we weren't going to get the individuals out, and very sadly one of my soldiers lost his life as well. That took about three hours to resolve, uh, a pretty intense, and then literally the moment it finished, we had multiple casualty situations in two different towns in the north that we were holding. And every time we sent helicopters into those towns, they were shot at, and we quite often uh, had near catastrophic loss of helicopter situations. And we sent the rescue helicopters out to pick up the multiple wounded we had. Um, and on both occasions, they were nearly shot down. So we had to recock, replan, and go back in. And we eventually managed to get the casualties out. Very sadly, another soldier uh, lost his life um, and another died on the way back in. And so on that day, suddenly layer upon layer of change, new drama, problems, frictions. Um, some of my people were dying. Many of them were badly wounded. Um, I think we had 24 casualties in all, um, three of whom succumbed to their wounds. Uh, and it was very intense and um, extremely difficult. And I can remember that I saw the pressure in my organization, in the command headquarters, as we're trying to resolve this situation and meet all these changing contingencies. And of course, I, I felt it myself. And so that was what I would say was the was the real absolute crucible. Mm. Um, and I can remember writing in my diary that night that I had seen incredible bravery and fortitude of my people. And I wondered whether it could get any worse. And I sort of remember writing down and say, tomorrow, we could have to do the same thing all again, and it might be even worse because it was the nature of the environment that we're in. What about self-doubt? Did you did you have that during that day, or were you relying on something that actually there was an it, there was something inside you which says like we can get through this, I can get through this, or did you just think actually no, I'm, I'm adept here? Well, it's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, I said before I was riven by self-doubt every single day in Afghanistan, um, without a shadow of doubt, uh, and particularly on that day. And I did wonder whether we were going to get through it. But what made the difference was that we had a framework of principles, methodologies, tools. And my greatest takeaway, and I think I probably described to you that um, after a 20-year career in the army, uh, Afghanistan really was that crucible of my leadership testing. 
And probably the biggest takeaway was that if you have these flexible and adaptable tools, which become part of your organizational DNA, both as a, a leader, a team, a task, and as an individual, and that's really important too, they actually work. So when things started to go wrong, we would rerun the process, um, sometimes in minutes, because that's all we had to take these very risky decisions. And ultimately we prevailed, we got our people out and we had some shocks and knocks on the way, but then defaulting to the philosophy of what being a leader is about, which is part of that framework that you're paid to do this. You enjoy all the advantages and privileges that come from being in a leadership position. And this is really where the rubber hits the road. And I was very conscious that people were looking at me in a busy headquarters, 80 people all doing different things, trying to resolve this situation. And having those, having a personal handrail and having organizational and team handrails was really important. We could take those pause moments, uh, the military calls them condor moments uh, after the old cigar smoking advert, but it was actually stepping back and saying, right, where are we? Is the mission still valid? Has certain things changed? What critical information has come in? How do we now amend what we're doing or adjust it to make sure it's still relevant to the situation? And so there's no rigid scope mentality, which you see in so many corporate projects. And it was this ability to adapt, adjust and overcome. And that was all down to having this framework of leadership skills, tools, principles, techniques, which all come together, but have to be applied flexibly. But it's interesting uh, having those, having all that, it's like a kind of a, you know, a, a toolkit and the principles and the framework, etc., which which then does stand you in good stead. Why do you think you were riddled with self-doubt? Where didn't your personal um, confidence match the, the frameworks and the tools that you were given? Well, I don't think there was a mismatch. Mm. Um, I don't think I ever felt that I couldn't plan something, yeah. that I couldn't give direction, I couldn't listen to other people, I couldn't make a decision. But I mean, I'm a paratrooper by background, um, which means I have to parachute occasionally. Um, and parachuting uh, is a dangerous occupation. And fear, which if you like is self-doubt, is a very good thing when you're jumping. It means you go through the drills. It means you have that self-discipline. Uh, it means that you reach to those frameworks to make sure you go out of the door uh, in front of lots of other paratroopers with purpose, with confidence. And so being riven by self-doubt, and perhaps one ought to qualify, um, being riven by self-doubt where you can't decide you can't act is a very bad mm -hmm. thing. But having a degree of self-doubt where you're continually questioning things, you know you need to reach a decision. So it is important that you, however you reach a decision, that you do decide and you do own it. But you've also got to reach out for the support mechanisms, not least the people around you who can help you, guide you. And to me, the definition of leadership is all about having a vision and a direction and empowering other people to get there. Um, but when you're sometimes making those decisions which really land down on you, harnessing that intellectual horsepower, that diversity of thought, the permission to challenge from all your people, as long as you can come to a decision is actually a very good thing. And so being having self-doubt as long as you are open to the input of others, but can decide on that input, I think is a very positive thing in a leader. Yeah, that sounds brilliant. And also the, the, the ability to engage people in the decision 
and actually have them flex it. That's what I'm hearing you say as well, actually. I, you know, if you get a number of people who feel empowered enough to say, I'm not so sure about that, you know, um, and then you can have a, having a rethink because it brings their leadership out in them as well, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and what it also does is it you, you can alleviate the effects of your own personal doubts and concerns if you believe in the power of your organization and the strength of your people. And that's what I would draw from. And sometimes when I was um, agonizing over a decision that I had to make at some point uh, in the near future, I would often go and talk to my troops, troops collecting to go on a mission, waiting to pick up some ammunition or even go and have a meal. I wouldn't necessarily talk to them about what we were doing, but I'd ask them how they were and I'd listen to their stories uh, and the circumstances and the difficulty they were going through. And I used to always draw strength from that. You know, when you're talking to an 18 year old paratrooper who has not come from an advantaged background and has been fighting endlessly for weeks on end with all the privations, who's in good spirits, determined, focused, you take strength from that individual. And it almost puts you into a frame of mind where you walk back into your headquarters with a greater sense of purpose that your job as a leader is to serve individuals like that in your organization. Brings me to mind a, a point we want to talk to you about, about, about the idea that leadership is always on show. Um, yes. yes, it is. Everyone's looking to you in that sense. And I, I was wondering in that, in that you're always on show, people, people look to you for decisions, they look for your body language, to, particularly in times of crisis, etc. Is that even more so in the army? Uh, that's that's one one question. Is it is it more like that in the army than anywhere else than in the corporate world? And also, um, how does it play? How has it played out for you? Has there any, ever been a time where you've kind of forgotten you were on show? I think Matt, it doesn't matter whether you're in the corporate world uh, or you're in the military world. That as a leader, you're always on point, and the tone does come from the top, whether it's good or bad. I think all leaders have to recognize they cast this shadow and it doesn't matter what they do, how they behave, what they say, it will have a negative or positive impact on their people. I think particularly now in this whole advent of COVID-19, leaders in the business world are absolutely on point. Um, it is an end-to-end -end activity, never more so than now. And I think employees, staff, customers will be looking at those business leaders to see not only if they can survive this crisis, but can they actually thrive through it and see on the opportunities? And there are a myriad of things that they need to do. And one of the things I'd commend people to do is understand that the military, if properly blended, provide a very powerful learning perspective about being in this uncharted territory, uh, which they can leverage. Um, if they care to. Um, have I ever had a wobbly moment as a leader? Yeah, I'm sure I probably had lots. I mean, I can think of one in particular when it was towards the end of the operation um, and my tactical headquarters party, which would, when it would come out of a helicopter, would be on uh, our feet like the, the rest of the battle group. We always traveled with the regimental aid post, that's the medical dressing station. And the casualty was brought in to the aid post. And of course I was close by uh, and it was a sergeant, a chap called Paddy Caldwell, who'd been shot through the neck and clearly in a pretty distressed state on a stretcher. 
And I went over to him and the medics were doing all the things they needed to do to save his life. And just before we got him on the helicopter to evacuate him, he said to me that he could feel his nervous system shutting down from his feet up into his neck. Anyway, we got him on the helicopter, hoping for the best and probably fearing for the worst as well. And I don't know why, uh, but that one moment, I just wanted to check myself out of the situation. So I decided to go off and have a quick cigarette on my own. And as I did so, I walked past my regimental sergeant major, the senior soldier in the battle group, who was saying all the things that I should have been saying as a leader to the young soldiers who risked their lives to bring Paddy into us. And I remember looking at my Lieutenant Colonel rank slide, and it acted like a handrail to say, actually, you're a leader, you're on point, you're not paid to have a wobbly moment. Everyone is looking at you. And it was a handrail reminder. And I went and joined this conversation and reinforced all the positive things and the right things that the regimental sergeant major was saying. And I think certainly in this crisis, I would commend any business leader and anyone managing a team in the commercial world that you've got to have those handrails. And they're not just handrails as how you work in the dynamic of being a manager and being a team, but it is also about self-leadership. And that one moment taught me that as a self-leader, you've got to have your own philosophy, which you can pull out of the bag uh, when things get difficult, because they will do, especially mm. now. It's interesting, the, the, the stars of that story when you were talking about actually you just needed to go away and decompress, take yourself out of the situation, because that's also important, isn't it? I mean, you know, on the one side, you, you reflected that actually you should have been doing what the regimental sergeant major was doing, but actually you've got to take care of yourself. So how do you how do you decide which to do at what stage? I think it's about time and place. So mm. I had and I didn't have much time to myself um, when I was allowed to have time. Um, but I made sure I wrote a journal every night and I'd write my thoughts down. Um, when I wasn't in the headquarters, I would sit down and just chat to some of the soldiers, as I mentioned, about all sorts of things, their families, where they're coming from. And that as well helped not just reinforce my sense of purpose and my leadership duty to these people but it also helped me just communicate with the community and what was going on and I found that actually very relieving in stressful terms because again you 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 suddenly had these benchmarks you think gosh you know I'm under pressure all this stuff is going on it's a pretty difficult job it's 24 seven sometimes. And even if I go to bed, it'll be two o'clock in the morning and I'm up at four o'clock for a mission or I go to bed and at three o'clock I've woken up and someone says, you've got to come back to the headquarters. There's a crisis and we're back into uh, a problem solving exercise again. But understanding what other people are going through. And uh, I generally made my bed on most nights, even if it was only for an hour or two, where some of the individuals out in the towns we're defending may not have had a night's sleep for several nights because they're being attacked every single night. So having those yardstick measurements of what other people are going through in your organization, I actually found very stress relieving because you think I'm not the only person here. Lots of other people are working incredibly hard and dare I say it, some of them are perhaps operating in harder conditions than I am. And given that then, I mean, the difficulty of leading in these situations and knowing lots of other, be other people are going through it, you know, in, in really extreme conditions as, as you were, um, 
I guess you had the benefit of what you're calling handrails. You have, you know, all the things you fall back on in the crisis. Organisations, lots of organisations don't have that kind of discipline or they haven't done that level of homework. So when they're going into a crisis like COVID or something, their fallback options are, are less, less defined. Um, I'm wondering, you know, what, what might be the equivalent of handrails that they could be looking to fall back on or what what advice would you be giving leaders now on kind of almost like playing catch up on handrails and kind of falling back on principles would you be taking them through any kind of specific steps on that funny enough i talk to quite a lot of companies um, sometimes a reasonably senior leadership level but also middle management as well and i think the key message that comes out in business generally and regardless of COVID-19, the similarities between the combat and the commercial world uh, are not insignificant. I mean, they both have to deal with that dizzying pace of technological change, the proliferation of non-traditional actors and the disruption they cause, and then, of course, the increasing regulatory media and conduct scrutiny. And, and that has been the case uh, way before COVID-19. Now COVID-19 layers more on top of that, this fear, this uncertainty, etc. But the message that comes out when you compare those two environments to what is going on today is, and I think we've mentioned this before, that really important word of empowering your people and empowering your organization. And the military are very good at empowerment, and that's because they have absolute clear mission purpose that runs as a single narrative in a way that people understand throughout the organization where every person knows their part in their plan. They can communicate it very effectively and communications flow upwards, downwards throughout the organization in a very formatted way. They have very clear collaboration mechanisms that cut across those silos, that breed collective accountability. They have this agile decision-making process, which allows them to pivot and adjust when circumstances change. And then the final thing is a codified leadership and culture framework which goes beyond word value statements and actually allows people to make decisions, behave in the right way, take bold action, but to do it within culture. And the military does empowerment and those five things incredibly well. And I would absolutely commend any business of any size to say, this is the opportunity. If you're not doing it already, and some companies are quite good at doing some of these things, but if you take a cold, hard look in the mirror and a reflection comes back and says, we could be better at this. We could have better methodology, better empowerment. We could lead our people better. We could look after them better. We could seize those opportunities. I would commend all of them to say, if those are the answers coming back to you, then you should absolutely look to the properly blended military experience and what it can bring to the commercial world. Can you just give me a, an idea of how to do that? So if I'm a leader listening to this, say, OK, well, what's my first step to do that? I, that? That sounds like a really interesting thing. People who've been through extreme stress, extreme crisis. Um, I want to tap that kind of methodology, but also the experience. What, what, what would be a good step for me to take? It's all about making the theory tangible. And to answer the question in terms of, OK, what's what are the specifics involved in here? Well, Take it step by step. So the first thing is to say, what is your mission? What's the unifying purpose? What are you trying to achieve? 
can you communicate it clearly in a way that people understand? Crucial in Afghanistan. No one believed in the UK mission, mm. which is a peace port operation. We had to recut in a way that made sense to the soldiers. Right, we are here to now hold these towns, stop them falling from the Taliban, in order to buy time for the UK to work out what its strategic response is. Made sense to every single soldier, whether they were an infantryman, a helicopter pilot, an engineer, whoever they were. So having that mission purpose in the organization, communicating it, then having those mechanisms of collaborating. So I'll give you a very specific, tangible example. In the corporate world, I was staggered by the hours and days of time I lost in nugatory meetings because we met, no one decided while we're meeting, the meeting overran, people were late, there was no specific agenda. Well, if you borrow from the military, there is a format for running a meeting and instead of lasting an hour and a half, it can run in 45 minutes with everyone clear why they're there, the right people there at the right time and actually leaving, having contributed to forming the outcome and then everyone being really clear about what the outcome is. Yet with plenty of permission to challenge. I mean, one people think that I think it's really important people understand uh, in the combat world, the military leadership command structure becomes very flat because it's about people's lives on the line. And so people are allowed to challenge um, and there's permission to do so. And that is absolutely codified. And then having that decision-making methodology, breaking it down into those stages, teaching your middle managers and your junior managers how to do that to be uh, the empowerment that we've been talking about. And then this codified framework of culture of leadership. I mean, defining what a leader means, giving the leaders and the managers of code. I mean, talking to one very sophisticated client uh, quite recently, they said, our junior and middle managers are screaming out for the tools of how to manage. And actually it's a shift to leadership, not just management. All their people who are under all the stress, pressure from working from home, childcare, uh, concerns about the virus, et cetera. Um, these are the practical applications that people should say, yes, now is the opportunity to really look about how we're doing things because it's not just about survival, it's actually about companies trying to thrive into the future as well. The word followership. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of time spent on talking about leadership. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a lot of training around leadership, but, um, but not a great deal on kind of followership. Is followership, um, is that kind of, in the armed forces, can we learn anything from them around how to follow a leader and how to make a leader a better leader in that sense by being a brilliant follower? It's crucial in terms of having um, good number twos yeah, and good strong managers who uh, are supporting you um, as a leader. And, and yes, the military codify this, uh, not least that my second in command is actually brief that if Sunray, that's the um, call sign to commanding officer on the net, if you suddenly hear Sunray is down, that means he's taking over. So you've got to have the right people in, in that role and you've got to trust them. But I found equally in the commercial world, um, when I went into the banking sector, I didn't know anything uh, about the specific function I was running. And I obviously had to become a fast learner. And the first person I hired had been someone who'd spent seven years doing my job effectively elsewhere. 
And some people would have thought, well, why are you bringing this individual in? Because he might threaten you in the future. And my view was, well, no, actually, he's, I'm bringing you in because he's got all the skill sets I need. Um, absolutely could challenge me. Um, um, I mean, he's a great friend of mine, became a great friend of mine very quickly, but could walk in and we could have these really robust, honest conversations because I always knew that he was adding value, even if he disagreed with me. And we always reached a better solution. And sometimes it was my way and sometimes it was his way. But the fact is we teased it out. We explored that diversity of thought. Um, he would bring people in. He would pick me up when he felt that I might not have handled something terribly well uh, because people would talk to him just as they talk to my second in command uh, in the army in a different way. They would say some things to those individuals because they're more junior than they would to me as the boss. Very important if that intermediary of your second in command or your operations director can come into your office and say, Stuart, are you aware that this is what people are thinking and they're not telling you? Mm. That's really important for a leader to know about that and actually for the organization to know that if you don't feel for whatever reason that you can talk to directly to the boss, you can go and talk to people around him or her who you know will go and communicate that message. And that becomes really powerful. And that, again, lends to empowerment because actually followership is having empowered people who will step up, will call out the good things but also call out the bad things crucially in a way and in a time that you can react so you can avoid fire drills so crucially yeah. important around yourself with capable people because if you yeah. lead them right they won't threaten you they will challenge you sometimes but it will be for positive benefit for you and the organization it sounds to me as well that you're talking um about actually leadership within the armed forces there's less ego in it the decision making, the level of empowerment actually takes away ego. Have you found in the corporate world a lot of leadership is driven more by ego than it was in the armed forces? I think it's really important to leave your ego at the door. Uh, I think that can be harder in the corporate world. Um, very few corporate leaders have been through a leadership training school. And so someone uh, said to me, a couple of months ago, who was a chief operating officer of a pretty large organization. How much leadership training have you had uh, in your 20 years in the army? And I said, seven years dedicated, command schools, training establishments, whatever. Yeah, the other 13 years have been operational. And he said, well, I've had people who worked for me for 20 years who haven't got seven days leadership training. So how can you, how can you import this stuff in? And my answer to him was, so why would you ignore the experience of another sector that has dedicated so much leadership, so much training uh, into what they do, if you can see the relevance to what you're doing? And I think the really open-minded business leaders, and there are lots of them about, um, and there would be more open-minded business leaders if they felt they had access to something. And I think that would dilute a lot of the ego you see because ego is usually a cover for some form of fragility and makeup isn't it? it might be fragility personality it might be experience it might be a combination of those things and the ability to have a more open world view where you turn around and go okay there's a sector over here which has been pretty successful what can we learn from it it won't be a lift and drop 
It will have to be adaptive to our circumstances. Not necessarily all of it will fit, but some of it will. So let's be open and receptive to at least considering it and seeing how it might fit. And I think that resolves and would resolve a lot of leadership which comes with uh, uh, it's an armor revealing some vulnerabilities beneath it. Um, yeah. And I think any leader now, uh, and I'm not sure how many uh, would say this because I think it's a false recognition that this is a difficult, difficult time and will be for several years into the future to lead, uh, would actually say, no, I'm absolutely fine. I'm all over this. Uh, I've dealt with this before. Um, I'm used to seeing loss, markets collapsing, uh, my people being really concerned, very scared, coming into work. Um, we're all over this and we don't need some help and we don't need support. Um, I would say, well, I don't think there are many people like that, not if they're being entirely honest. Yeah. And that doesn't mean they're not very, very capable business people and business leaders. But I think in circumstances like this, just as we found in Afghanistan, everyone needs a bit of help. Yeah. Yeah. On that, towards the end of your uh, military career as well, I wanted to get into the, the point around moral compass as well, because you've got a lot of you know, leadership capability, you have handrails, you've decision making processes. Um, uh, you, I think your point around, you know, seconding commands, the followership element is a really, really important point as well. But, and then and then this moral compass where where actually what started to happen towards the end of your career there is this was being challenged in you. Um, and could you say a little bit about that as well, about, you know, why did you leave the army and what forced the decisions for you? Well, certainly coming back from Afghanistan was 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 a significant challenge in itself because we were transitioning mm. to what was now abnormal, which was being back in the UK. So we'd gone through this traumatic experience uh, together as a community of three para. Um, and I had a very different community to lead. I had the mums and dads, next of kins wives, children of the members of the unit who'd been killed in action. Uh, and then I had 46 combat casualties um, and I had all their families uh, to look after as well. And some of my soldiers were displaying the first signs of uh, the invisible scars of war, sort of post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. And if I'm really honest, I don't think there was a person in my battle group who wasn't to some extent touched by the trauma of what we'd been through although it is the minority where it was particularly acute with PTSD. And that meant that the main effort had to shift to this different transition, another transition we were going through. And it was about putting the arm of well-being around everyone, visiting hospitals, visiting the families, um, speaking to every soldier who we realized might have a trauma issue. Um, and it was a busy, busy time, very, very much focused on people. And it was crucially important. And we'd also been warned off we were going back to Afghanistan as well. But I decided that the priority was we needed to get the people welfare bit sorted out first. Um, sadly, the official welfare system wasn't geared up for the level of what we've been through. And it was pretty woeful. Um, I must say that it's changed dramatically over the last 10 years. Uh, but then it was very, very bad. Um, people couldn't get uh, what they needed. I was fighting to stop soldiers being discharged for their injuries. Uh, appointments were being missed for the right medical treatment. We couldn't get the right accommodation. We couldn't get wheelchairs. That's why we set up our own charity. And, and it really battered my uh, moral com 
compass and, and damage my moral component. And I was fortunate, I'd been promoted fairly early after commanding three Paris, I was about to leave as a full colonel, and I had been decorated as well. And I found myself increasingly having some quite tough conversations with every senior officer I met and also any politician of, you know, look, I have no truck with the fact that my people have been hurt. That's part of the business we're in. But when we break people, we have an absolute grateful nation duty to look after them. And when we're not doing that. And on a couple of occasions, I was taken aside and said, Stuart, you need to dial this down a bit because you could begin to damage your career. And after one or two conversations like that, I said, well, fine, I'm out of here. I'm resigning uh, because this is this is so appallingly wrong. I didn't know quite what I was going to do. Never expected to end up working um, for a bank. But it was the right thing to do. It, funny enough, it's the one time as a leader I felt incredibly lonely. And I did talk to some of the people around me, you know, what should I do? Should I resign? Uh, but I suddenly realized only I could take that decision. Um, but it was the very hard but very right thing to do. Uh, and I don't regret it for a moment. Um, I found myself in a coroner's court just after I'd left the army, um, dealing or facing the coroner uh, to evidence my decision making led to the death. And it was my decision making that led to a very contentious death of one of my soldiers. And I really thought my reputation was what well, it was on the line. Uh, and I might even face a sanction and a criminal prosecution for negligence. But because I could evidence my decision making, uh, the situation we were in, how we approached it, the imperfect information we had, we didn't have the benefit of hindsight. Um, I walked out of that coroner's court with a commendation when it could have been very, very different. But the one thing that made a difference for me, really made a difference for me, and of course the reputation of the unit was massively important, more important than my own reputation, was as I stepped out of the witness box and the court was full of media because it was a big national press story, and the family of this soldier was there, and the mother stepped up, and there was an awkward pause as I walked out of the courtroom, and she leaned forward and she kissed me. And she said words to the effect, you know, thank you for being so honest and thank you for caring for all the people in three para because she was very, very close uh, to the community as a whole. And that one poignant moment for me, so that if you get all those constituents right, how you empower your people, how you lead them, how you look after them, how you mission purpose them, actually people are unstoppable. And the fortitude of this member of our community in the form of one of the soldiers' mothers, who sadly lost his life, was massively important. And, and that really underpinned to me mm. that difficult ethical decision to leave was actually the right thing to do. And mm. I don't regret it. Um, and yeah. I don't regret anything I've done in the army either. But uh, no, it was, it was very important because there will be a reckoning around COVID-19. And leaders will have to account for their decisions, not least because they focus on COVID, health and safety at work, uh, the mental well-being of their people. And also the state is going to take more and more interest in the way that businesses conduct themselves. Yeah. So the fact yeah. that you can have an audible decision-making process, which can also support your ethical being, if you like, I think is a very powerful thing right now. Amazing to hear you talk about that and about that. <laughs> Sounds like another Kind of a crucible moment that with, with that mother right there and um it, it's in some ways um 
the, you were kind of you stopped your career in order to do your job in some ways there's the mission that you'd originally gone into Hellman to do and then it changed but and also the mission your own personal mission on your involvement with the army actually doing what is right by the people who relied on you and you relied on rather than keeping your you know the intent on keeping your career as your mission within the your mission within the armed forces changed in a similar way I was very fortunate that um, we had set up this little charity when we were in yeah. three para and it was a real cottage industry and then there was a need and some people came to me and said that we need to expand this for the whole of the regiment unfortunately I was outside of the army chain of command so I could really do what I wanted to do so we set up this charity uh, I was backed uh, very well by my employer as well and we ended up raising just under four million pounds uh, for all the wounded soldiers and their families and the great thing is we were so agile um, and we had a charity commission's uh, regulatory structure so we complied with all the rules but we could make a decision about giving a grant of 10,000, 20,000 pounds, whatever it was, to a needy family or soldier, and we could do it within minutes because we had this agile decision-making framework. We empowered certain people to provide us with information, and three or four of us would then come together from the trustees and say, as long as there's a corpus of, I think it was three or four, I can't remember, but let's say four people, bang, email went out, and we could just spend this money where the more official traditional charity welfare structure just couldn't move as fast as we could which was great for for raising more money because it was a very powerful impact statement when you're looking for um sponsors so you're very right it's a very difficult uh, personal time for me because mm. i loved being a soldier and it was yeah. my absolute vacation i was very fortunate that i had another sense of purpose which was all about well okay i'm no longer a soldier but what can i do for the welfare of the people i've served with and, and just kind of wrapping that up, I mean, I think what's really clear coming from me is, is just how much you can take from leadership and in, in the armed forces and how much you can kind of transfer it into any part of life. And I think, you know, absolutely set leaders in good stead, particularly in this very, very difficult time moving forward. So just, just closing, I mean, everyone talks about the word resilience lots of people have different definitions of it and things like that i'm just wondering with you stuart kind of when i when i say the word resilient has that has the definition of the meaning of that kind of changed for you over the course of your career and you know what does it really mean to you resilience and what do you draw on i think it probably has changed as one grows older um, hopefully more wiser and and you mature with your own experiences and so as a young officer resilience was always about um how fast you could run how many press-ups you could do um could you keep going on lots of sleep and, and that type of thing but over time as you have a wider purview on the world and the environment you operate in you realize there are different parts to it and you have a different almost framework approach and so resilience for me has become, it has a conceptual part to it. You know, how do you plan? How do you decide? Where are those handrails? Um, it definitely has a moral component to it. What are the rights and wrongs that you have to think about? Um, and that's when the former helps the latter, because sometimes you're in a gray area of decision making. Um, and then probably a material component to it as well, which is, okay, how do you do stuff? 
how do you operationalize um, these handrails? And I think you, if you can build that framework, um, so for example, the decision-making methodology, I talked about that control check step. Uh, it's all about contingency planning. It's all about the what ifs. It's all about if I was running a business now, one of the things I'd be thinking about supply chains, uh, just enough, just in time has been proven to be very, very fragile. So how would I build my contingency around that supporting my mission purpose? Um, where's the resilience in that? That's the material bit of it. How do I build in some redundancy? It may cause me more short-term costs, but in the long term, it can save me uh, a lot of money. And then I think if you underpin that framework with a sense of self-leadership, what do you expect from yourself as a leader? Where do you go when you're in those moments when there is a danger that self-doubt might overtake you? And then the bottom line is that if you also underpin it about your focus on people and their welfare um, and doing the right thing by them and how you will be remembered for it, I think that then becomes a very powerful brew. And that combination not only helps you not only helps your organization the tasks you're trying to achieve but helps your team and your individual employees um, and i honestly think there are some real opportunities out there and those companies who can seize that and the leaders in those companies who can seize that as we said won't just survive this they'll thrive beyond it and i think we could see some really unstoppable companies out there for all the right reasons being becoming incredibly successful but they've got to get through that baptism of fire and I'd commend them to to reach out and get the support if they think they need it. Sure, that's brilliant. Thank you. I mean, I think that 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 particular last point around resilience and about how you kind of kind of plan for it, but also the inner work that you have to do, and that's a brilliant blend, and how leaders can uh, can do both to stand them in good stead is a is a fantastic point as well. So I just wanted to say a huge thank you. It's really insightful. It's very moving, but also really practical for us going forward as well. So once again, Stuart Tootle, thanks very much. Matt, thanks for the opportunity and great to see you again. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>